This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Temple Grandin sees everyday life differently, like a film in my head, she says, in vivid visual detail. Grandin is the renowned animal scientist at Colorado State University. She revolutionized the treatment of livestock. She has also spoken out for people with autism, like herself. Well, now she has a message for young people. Put down your phones and make stuff. Her new book is called Calling All Minds, How to Think and Create Like an Inventor. Along with the book, she has a plea for parents and educators. Temple Grandin, welcome back to the show. It's really good to be here. You want kids to have some of the experiences that you did, making use of everyday things. And I think of the cardboard in your father's shirts when they would come back from the dry cleaners. In the book, you call that treasure. Uh, What did you do with that cardboard? Oh, I made puppet stages out of it, just all kinds of things. But when I was a child, I loved to tinker and make things. I spent hours uh, making a bird kite, and I had to experiment and experiment to get it to work. A lot of kids today, they don't know how to tinker. They don't know how to make mistakes. And Calling All Minds also has got profiles of famous inventors and lots of patents in there, including my grandfather's patent um, because he was co-inventor of the autopilot for airplanes. That's right. This is in the Grandin blood. Have you looked up that patent? My understanding is... Oh, yes. The patent is in my book. I've got lots of cool patents in there from really important ones to even got a couple of silly patents that kids will think are fun, like decorative fly swatters. And you'll just have to read the description that's in the patent. It's really funny. Back to your childhood, you said that you made things like bird kites. What's a bird kite? Well, I took a little piece of a textured art paper and made a little triangular kite shaped like a bird. And I bent the wings up um, on the ends, just like what a modern jet airliner has. And I had to experiment and experiment to get it to fly behind my trike. I was a really young kid at that time. And I reinforced the wings with just the right amount of tape. And then it would work really well. You know, there's kids today that have never made a paper airplane. I did a book signing for the book recently in Colorado, and I found a lot of young elementary kids had never made a paper snowflake. They hadn't made a paper airplane. We got to get kids making stuff. Now, why? Because I I can imagine a kid listening to this going, well, that sounds super analog and old school. It's going to teach them important skills like how to improvise, how to solve problems, how to think simple. Just the other day, the paper jammed in my copier, and uh, then all of a sudden it just wouldn't work at all. And I was getting kind of annoyed at it. And I go, wait a minute. I checked the plug, but then I realized this copier had a jack in the back, and I had to plug the other end of the plug in. It had gotten unplugged when I turned it around. Sometimes you just got to think of the simple thing. And you think that that kind of, I guess, analog doing, that tinkering, as you've called it, you think that actually might lead a child down a path where they're doing much more sophisticated digital technological things? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, in USA Today, uh, there was an article about uh, limiting screen time to about two hours a day, Mm. and the kids did better on a lot of cognitive things. You know, there's a lot of students today that don't even know how to look things up online. That's why in my class, I've got an assignment where they can pick out something interesting in animal behavior, and I want them to look up articles on the different scientific databases. We need to be getting kids better at problem solving. Also, Kids are not getting exposed to tools and enough trade stuff. Uh, one of the projects in Calling All Minds is my fifth grade woodworking project. Yeah. Uh, and it teaches you how to use a little coping saw. 
because we've got kids today growing up to be teenagers and they're not using tools. We've got a gigantic shortage of skilled tradespeople. And these are good jobs that are not going to get replaced by computers. And one of the worst things that schools have done is taken out music, theater, automobile shop, welding, um, woodworking, because these are uh, careers where uh, they will not get replaced by computers. Electrician, plumber. I think we should talk about the importance of failure, of trying, not succeeding, and then trying and maybe not succeeding again, and then eventually succeeding, how, how important that is to the process. Will, will you just well, say a few more words? It teaches patience. And I had to tinker and tinker to get my bird kite to work. And there's a lot of kids getting shunted into special ed that are visual thinkers like me. And you need these tinkerers. Uh, they're the ones that figure out how to make things work. Yeah, you write about... A young woman, I recall, who loved to take apart alarm clocks, and instead of being sort of castigated by her parents, uh, they encouraged this kind of behavior, this this exploration of how things work. Well, I would also encourage putting them back together again, which <laughs> means that uh, as you take them apart, you need to lay the parts out in a line on the workbench so you'll have the right order for putting them back together again. To this day, you write, you still like to look up patents, huh? Oh, yeah, I think looking up patents is fun. Um, when I went to recreate my bird kite, I was not able to buy, at least buy easily, the same textured art paper I had as a kid. So I had to use file folders, and they don't have the same flight characteristics. So I started looking up all this cool stuff about why a golf ball's rough, and that's explained in Calling All Minds. That rough surface improves the aerodynamics. And how did people discover that? They found old scuffed balls worked better. Huh. And then I looked up the patent for the... Um, jet engine that's scalloped on the back end of the exhaust, and it makes the plane quieter. It's a really cool patent. It's just a shape, a patent so simple that a second grader can understand this patent. And Temple Grandin, you yourself are the holder of a patent. It's an animal stunning system for slaughterhouses. Tell us just a little bit more about uh, this inventor you were related to, your grandfather, and the, the autopilot he created. When was that? I'm like, that was way before, it was before World War II. Huh. Grandfather was an MIT-trained engineer and a man named Andrew Nickian, who was probably on the autism spectrum, came to him with this wild idea for a magnetic sensor, three little uh, coils that could be put in the wing of the airplane to sense the magnetic field. And all the big names in aviation thought it was just crazy. They were going to wire that plane steering up to the magnetic compass. Only problem is it oscillated all over the place. So my grandfather got together with uh, some other people and with Mr. Nicky, and they tinkered in the loft over a place that uh, fixed the trains. And sometimes the um, magnetic device would work, and other times it went crazy. And he finally figured out that when the trains went about six feet under his workbench, it totally messed up the magnetic field, and he got it out there away from the trains, and then it worked. But they had to tinker to get it to work. And so my grandfather was in the situation where he looked at something that a lot of people thought was kind of a wild idea, and he goes, yeah, but I can make that work. A lot of young people work with computers now. And I wonder, Temple Grandin, if you think of coding as a kind of invention. Oh, it's definitely an invention. What I've talked about in my other books, such as The Autistic Brain and Thinking in Pictures, I've talked about different kinds of thinking. Some people are visual thinkers like me who think in photorealistic pictures. Everything is a picture. And then there's other people that think in patterns, more mathematical those are the people that will be extremely good at coding. They're more the mathematical mind, the musical mind. And then you've got other people that think completely in words. 
And there's scientific evidence that these different kinds of minds exist. But I'm getting worried that our school system is screening out a lot of our visual thinkers like me because we absolutely can't do algebra. But I worked with brilliant skilled tradespeople right here in Colorado on projects I did in the big beef plants here. And I think today some of these people would be you know, diagnosed dyslexic, maybe ADHD, maybe mildly autistic, and they could make all kinds of complicated things out of metal. And I'm worried that we're uh, losing these kids because mm. we need them. No, I'm really concerned. I was just talking to a mom this morning and her daughter that came in to visit with me. And um, their school up in Wyoming had just taken out the automobile shop class. And I go, if that's the worst thing you could do. You need visual thinkers. Let's take your iPhone, for example. Yeah. Steve Jobs was an artist. He was probably on the autism spectrum. An artist made the interface, which makes your phone easy to use. The engineers, the more mathematical engineers, they had to make the inside of that phone work. So that's the two different kinds of minds working together. Right. And then there's the mind like mine, which is totally word-based, which might work on, you know, the predictive text or the translation of something. That's right. Uh-huh. That's why you're in radio. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. I wonder how often you look at people in mainstream media and say, I think he's on the spectrum. She's on the spectrum. That person's on the spectrum. Oh, I've seen it all the time, and I've been out the Silicon Valley, and, oh, half those programmers are on the spectrum, and so are some of the people running the companies. Autism is a continuum, going from somebody who's super brilliant and gets a little shortchanged on the social circuits to somebody who remains nonverbal and cannot dress themselves. And one of the problems today in education is that this huge spectrum now all has the same name, hmm. and I'm seeing too many smart kids getting getting held back. When I was a young child, uh, my ability in art was really encouraged. And I was encouraged to do lots of different kinds of art, not just doing the same horse head over and over again. So if the kid likes anime, have him do the anime guy's car. Have him make a picture of his house. You want to take that interest and broaden it. We need all the different kinds of minds. And the first step is for people to recognize that different minds bring different skills And when people recognize that there's different ways people think, they can uh, kind of divide up the work so that the different skills can work together. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Temple Grandin is an animal science professor at CSU and an autism advocate. Her new book for young people is Calling All Minds, How to Think and Create Like an Inventor. The Colorado Rockies open a playoff series with the Brewers in Milwaukee this afternoon. The team owes much of its success to 25-year-old pitcher and Denver native Kyle Freeland. CPR's Vic Vela asked him what it was like to win his first-ever playoff game Tuesday night in Chicago, which led the way to the National League Division Series. It was crazy. That atmosphere uh, inside Wrigley Field, is it's like, it's like no other. But, you know, warming up, going through my stretches, getting loose and everything, it, it, it was wild. You know, you had to do everything you could to, you know, control your heart rate, control your adrenaline. But, uh, you know, sometimes those things just like kind of take over uh, in-game. And uh, there was a few times I stepped off the mound and, you know, just really felt the energy from the crowd. It was crazy. It was just blistering noise that it, it can really get you going. Could anything possibly prepare you for that kind of moment? No, not really. I mean, I spoke with uh, Tom Murphy last year when we were in Arizona playing the wild card game, and I remember 
we turn to each other like you can't prepare for this this kind of atmosphere this kind of energy it's impossible the only way you can prepare for it is, is by living through it and, and going through it on your own and finding ways to have success so I kind of tapped into to that feeling I had last year even though I wasn't even playing in the game just remembering how it felt and and knowing what I need to do to control my emotion control my adrenaline and, and keep my focus where it needs to be Tom Murphy a, a catcher in the Rockies organization you were born in uh, 1993, uh, which coincidentally, that was the same year as the Rockies' inaugural season. And in fact, I don't know if you know this, but ESPN was showing a picture of little baby Kyle Freeland in a Rockies onesie. <laughs> you were in a little onesie with the Rockies logo uh, b- before the game started. That's got a, I'm sure that draw uh, brought out a lot of oohs and ahs from some of your family and friends. Yeah, that picture first came out last year uh, when when I had my debut. But yeah, I mean, it just shows you know, grew up a Rockies fan, loved watching them. Obviously, obviously, my parents were excited that a, a team was coming to Denver and ha- and have a franchise in the city. My dad, being a pioneer of Denver, Colorado, him and his family, um, I know he was super excited. So they uh, seems like they they wanted to immediately get me uh, being a fan. Well, you grew up in Denver. You went to top Thomas Jefferson High School. Um, you have a tattoo of the Rocky Mountains on your arm. And I'm sure you went to a lot of games when you were a little kid uh, at, at Coors Field. I guess kind of describe what that was like going to those games back in the 90s when you were a kid. And now that you're pitching for this team and guiding them through the playoffs, what's that like? Um, you know, I remember going to a lot of games growing up uh, and I always remember first walking into the stadium and, and you know, walking through the concourse and then, and then coming over and seeing seeing the opening of the baseball field and, and just thinking how absolutely massive it is. And it, and it just truly feels like it's it's larger than life. And, you know, at that age, it's it's easy to see that. Um, and now being able to, you know, pitch on that field for, for that team is, is just extremely surreal for me. And, and I, you know, soak in as much as I can. It doesn't get any easier for you guys. And now you have to play uh, the Milwaukee Brewers, a really hot baseball team. Kind of talk me through what you guys are expecting to see from them. It's no easy ride. Um, and, and no one said it was going to be easy. Um, with this travel, you know, we're going to keep doing what we've been doing and, you know, grinding out, find ways to win, um, doing our thing that we've been doing kind of all season long. And it's going to be, you know, that much sweeter when we get to look back and, and be like, you know, we accomplished this when, you know, the, the odds were against us. I went to some games recently um, as you guys were pushing for the playoffs. And I was in the Rockies uh, team shop going through a bunch of your, uh, you know, player jerseys. Uh, Kyle Freeland jerseys flying off the shelves. And you see them all over town now. I mean, what what are you what does that say about this fan base that's that's been supporting you since you got here? Uh, it, it's great. Um them having not only my back but the team's back and the whole organization's back and and really starting to buy into you know what we're kind of what we're trying to accomplish here um it's great to see um they're behind us you know we when that washington series at home right before we went to la you know we kind of got a little taste of what it's going to be like uh if we're able to get some home playoff games because they were they were wild. They were rowdy. They were uh, they were enjoying you know watching us succeed and, and win baseball games in in a critical time. 
So seeing the city start to really rally behind us is awesome. And every player who plays for a team always wants to play well for their team. They want to win for their team. But you're also playing well and wanting to do well and win for your city. This is your hometown, Kyle. Um, that's got to make you feel pretty special. Yeah, I, I, I take a lot of pride in it. Um, I know the other guys uh, do too. Um, but you know, being from Denver, watching this team uh, growing up uh, through the ups and downs, the 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 playoff stints, um, the playoff droughts, um, it's it's been a roller coaster, and now to be able to be a part of it um, is extremely special to me. And you know, I'm I'm hoping to just continue to make people proud as my teammates want to do, and uh, and keep picking them up. Kyle Freeland, Rockies pitcher and a Denver native. Kyle, thanks for the conversation. All right, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, guys. He spoke with CPR's Vic Vela. The Rockies begin a best-of-five playoff series against the Brewers this afternoon in Milwaukee, and the Rockies play at home Sunday. Now, something you won't hear anymore, except for right now. Please keep clear of the doors. You are delaying the departure of this train. That announcement ran four years in the trains at Denver International Airport. But no more, says spokeswoman Emily Williams. People either loved it or thought that it might be a little bit bossy. So we took this opportunity to uh, record maybe a gentler message that asked people to keep clear of the doors um, and that the train is departing. If you're one of those curious people who loved the announcement, not to worry. You can download it as a ringtone. Check out my Twitter feed for the link at CPR Warner. Archaeologist Chris Fisher studies ancient cities on the ground and from the air. His projects include the so-called Lost City of the Monkey God in Honduras and an unusual city built by rivals of the Aztecs in southwest Mexico. While working at these sites, Fisher contracted an incurable rainforest disease. His research was thwarted by vandals, but he remains undeterred. He has even come up with an idea for tracking the effects of climate change for this kind of work. And Chris joins us from Colorado State University in Fort Collins. Welcome back to the program. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Okay, the last time we spoke, you'd recently returned from Honduras and the high-profile expedition to study what's indeed become known as the Lost City of the Monkey God. First off, Chris, what has so captured people's imaginations about this place? I mean, like dating back to the 1500s. Well, I, I think it's one of these legends, this lost city, this place where, uh, you know, where people disappeared into the jungle. and We don't really know what sort of happened with them. And I think more, more broadly, um, I think people are surprised that it's the 21st century. And yet we know so little about our world that there are these places that we can still enter where people haven't been for centuries. Yeah. So when we stepped off the helicopter and went into that jungle, it was possibly the only time in my life when I was going to be able to see this world that, that people really hadn't visited for, for hundreds of years. It was the only place, and I you know, worked globally, it was the only place I've ever been where there wasn't any plastic. Huh. In the intervening years, uh, has your research turned up anything new about that ancient city in Honduras? So in 2015, we field verified the LIDAR results. 
the aerial survey. And um, everything that we saw in those, those three-dimensional LIDAR images was there on the ground, including a cache of objects that were probably left there when the city was abandoned uh, as a way of ritually closing that place. Huh. In, 20, in 2016, we returned uh, about six months later with the support of the Honduran government and with a large grant from National Geographic to uh, mitigate <clears throat> those objects so that they weren't in danger of being looted. Uh, they, the, the president left a, uh, the president of Honduras left a uh, group of soldiers there to, uh, or rotated a group of soldiers in and out of the jungle to, to protect those objects. And we returned to uh, systematically excavate the objects that were most in danger of being looted and then to stabilize the, the rest of the deposit. Uh, but unfortunately, we were too late. Um, in, the, in that six-month period, uh, some of the objects have been looted. We don't know who did that. It had to have been um, somebody from the, the government or the uh, uh, military. They were the only ones that, that could get into the site. Um, the objects were returned to the location, so we have the objects. But, of course, their three-dimensional context, which is really, you know, what's the most important thing about those objects was, was uh, lost for uh, about 10 of the objects that we were able to recover. Well, because out of it's, about it's out of about 400. It's really important to understand where those objects were. That tells you something, perhaps, about why they were placed where they were. And what sorts of objects are we talking about that, as you say, might have been a farewell to this place? Well, so these are one way you show your eliteness in this part of the world in the prehistoric period was to be off the ground. So there are these ritual seats, almost like thrones. Um, they're called locally matates, like manos and matates, like grinding stones that many of us might be familiar with from Mexico. But they're not, they're not grinding stones. They're, they're ritual seats. And those were arranged around several powerful objects uh, in the, the form of a, a were jaguar and possibly a dead ancestor. A were jaguar? A were jaguar, which is... Um, if a werewolf isn't terrifying enough, <laughs> a were a jaguar is even more terrifying, which is half human, half jaguar. And it's actually a very common iconography in, in Mesoamerica and Central America. It shows a person, a transformative person, move, you know, becoming a, a kind of a spirit animal. So it's half human, half jaguar. Um, and, and some other iconography. And it was almost as if these seats were arranged around these objects for kind of the last final council meeting before they were, uh, before the city was abandoned. My goodness, how you bring this to life when you talk about it. My understanding is that you're not headed back to Honduras anytime soon. The situation has, has just gotten too precarious there. Uh, would you say just briefly a few words about why? Sure. So, so my, my feeling on, on the matter is that it's, it's simply too dangerous to return for, uh, for, for work there. And I should say that Conservation International has returned to the site, and they did some work there, um, and they have some amazing discoveries. Uh, and to just summarize them briefly, basically that, that they were able to document that this indeed is a, a lost world. Um, but um, we, you know, you have a, a almost a fifty percent chance of getting uh, an incurable parasite, and the impact of that parasite is variable. It depends on the person's kind of. Um, physiography or whatever, how well they tolerate the parasite. And then it's also just incredibly dangerous getting in there. 
uh, it's only reasonably accessed via helicopter. And the helicopters that we were using in 2016 were the 100 military helicopters, and the one that we were using was a Huey, just like straight out of Apocalypse Now. Yeah. It was, it was built in 1969, saw service in Vietnam, was brought back, uh, saw service in the Contra War, um, and then we and then was continued. It was refurbed, but we continued to use that um, for our, for our own work. And the door actually came off of that helicopter on one of the last um, return journeys out of the jungle with a bunch of my people on it. And they were, you know, uh, uh, the door was a foot away from going to the rotor of the helicopter, which would have been catastrophic. Oh my goodness! So, so my, you know, my feeling is it's just. It, I mean, the archaeology is really important. The the uh, the ecology is really important, but it's it's not important enough to to you know risk somebody's life like that. Well, you risked your own life, your own health, because you were one of those afflicted by this incurable disease, leishmaniasis, and it wreaked havoc on your body. It can wreak havoc on your skin. The treatment often seems worse than the, the disease. I want to say though that your latest research is in Mexico a place called Angamuco. And at its height, do I have this right, it was Mexico's largest city, even more dense than Manhattan? Well, so, yeah, it was, it's, a, it's a very large site. It covers about 26 square kilometers. We, of course, know so little about it that um, even though, you know, we've excavated there for three years, we've done intensive survey for two years, we have this three-dimensional scan of the entire site, um, so we can estimate how many building foundations are on it. So it's an incredibly large site, but we don't know whether it was all occupied at one time. Oh. And it's going to take decades of research to to unravel that. So what you know, one of the things that I've been saying is that when Angamuco was occupied, it had about as many building foundations as there are on the island of Manhattan. But of course, on Manhattan, those building foundations are skyscrapers. And at Angamuco, they're the houses of ordinary people. Mm-hmm. You know, they might be a couple meters by a couple meters on a side. So, you know, and, and of course, the, the maximum population of Angamuco, if everything was occupied at one time, which it probably wasn't, it's about 200,000 people. On the island of Manhattan, you have upwards of, you know, of 1.5 or 1.6 million people. So, you know, when I, when I make that comparison, and then that comp- comparison came out in, um, an article that was in The Guardian, and it got picked up in the media in, in Latin America. You know, the idea is to just get people thinking about urbanism and what that actually means and what, you know, prehistoric urbanism means versus modern urbanism and, um, you know, what, what an amazing process it actually is. And Angamuco was not well known until just recently, right? Yeah, so, you know, doing performing traditional archaeological survey, which is basically a technology that goes back to World War One. You have a you know, we've updated it with you know, new GPS units and stuff, but it's basically the same technology. You have a, a group of trained uh researchers walk across the landscape in a line in a transect, record everything that they find. Over the course of doing that in two thousand and nine we discovered Angamuco, which is the city that is on a geologically speaking, very recent lava flow. It's on top of a lava flow. And, you know, we, we started surveying this place, walking across. I had a group of graduate students. And one day they were like, Chris, we need, 
we got to find an edge. You know, we need to know what we're dealing with. So I grabbed a, a couple of, of cliff bars and a bottle of water, and I walked across this land form, and I walked for about two kilometers. <laughs> and I got to the other side, and I was like, oh, there are buildings all the way across. Oh, this is a city. And then I was like, oh, no. It's a city. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the rest of my life's work. We we have just about a minute left, sure. Chris, Chris Fisher. Um, you mentioned LIDAR earlier, this uh, technology that really allows you to get a fuller picture of these ancient lost places. Um, will you help me understand how you'd like to use it to understand climate change, just briefly? Right. So LIDAR is a comprehensive three-dimensional record of the Earth's surface and everything on it. And it's typically accomplished from some kind of aerial platform, a drone, a helicopter, a plane. We practice what one of my colleagues calls a digital deforestation. We remove the vegetation so we can see the Earth's surface. But all of that stuff that we, all of that information that we painstakingly filter from those records are the careers of hundreds of other scientists. Our Earth is changing dramatically and we have a very limited window in, in, in which to record the Earth as it is now for future generations so that they can understand it scientifically. So here at CSU, we're promoting the acquisition of massive LIDAR records for threatened, starting first in threatened areas to permanently record the Earth as it exists now so that people, you know, a century from now can go back, look through these records with tools that are much more sophisticated than we have now, and, you know, help them understand how the Earth is changing and, and what's actually causing it, and importantly, how to, how to stop it. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Chris Fisher, archaeologist at Colorado State University and an explorer of ancient civilizations. He joined us from Fort Collins. Our next guest snowboards, like a lot of Coloradans, but Raphael Pease isn't in it for the casual weekend ride. For the past three years, his board has carved tracks down 90 mountains and volcanoes, some of them more than 20,000 feet high. He has traveled from the peaks of Kyrgyzstan to the Andes, from Japan to Canada. And along the way, he has learned how the people who live closest to those lands feel about them. Pease is a professional snowboarder and lives part-time in Boulder. His new documentary about his travels is called Eugen. And Raphael, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. This film was such a meditation for me, looking at these aerial shots of you in some of the most remote spots on Earth. I guess, first off, what does Eugen mean? Help us understand the title of the documentary. Um, so Yugen is an ancient Japanese word that the Japanese created it to uh, describe an indescribable feeling that they have with the universe and nature. So it's a it's a word that describes a sensation and uh, a feeling. So there's not really a definition to it. With the idea, I suppose that you can't translate it directly into any other language, and so it it sort of stands on its own. Yeah, that's the the idea of using it for the title of the film, so people can't really change it. The snowboard you're on is actually called a slipboard. 
that you use both to climb up and descend the mountains. Will you describe a slipboard for us? Yeah, I mean, for those who uh, know what ski touring is, it's basically the same thing. It's a it's a snowboard that you split in half. You put synthetic skins on the bottom, which allow you to go uphill and uh, maintain traction so you don't slip backwards. And uh, it's a great tool to travel to a lot of remote places where helicopters and vehicles can't get to. And, and this is a snowboard essentially that divides into two parts. I think that's what's yeah. cool about it. And then it. you put it back together and you go back down like a normal snowboard. The film shows you almost literally flying down some very steep slopes. Uh, is it easier or harder than traditional skis? Um, you know, I, I've never skied, so uh, <laughs> okay. I, I can't really judge. But from what I've heard, snowboarding is a little bit more difficult since you have half the amount of edges for self-control yeah. when going down the mountain. But I think it's relative, uh, you know, you just have to try both and see what feels better. How did you pick where to go? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I chose the locations based off of what I found on Google Earth. I spent a lot of time on that, and I just look at what looks remote and difficult. <laughs> so it's a, it's a challenge, and it's fun going on big expeditions and, and kind of going in blind and then trying to put all the puzzle pieces together to see if there's something that works out. But the the locations for this film, they intrigue me quite a bit because they're all in separate parts of the world. In Kyrgyzstan, you have more nomadic people, deserts, big peaks. And in Japan, you know, you have a bunch of snow that falls every year and a very different culture. Uh, the same goes for Canada, Alaska, and Patagonia. Everywhere you went, you tried to learn something about the locals. And again, these are very remote places. You spoke to those nomads in Kyrgyzstan, for instance, people not used to meeting foreigners or seeing big cameras. They saw your snowboard and what you were doing with it really is a curiosity. Here's a man you interviewed in the Yukon Territory explaining that. The elder lady said to me, uh, I hear you climbed that big mountain there. I said, yeah. Sheep there? No. Goats there? No. What do you go there for? You know, and, and that's, uh, that's the difference in perspective, you know. In other words, why risk your life if you don't get a goat out of it? Was that typical? I mean, was your view of nature very different from the peoples who live in those areas? Well, I think it's, it's pretty different for all of us since... Um, I'm, I'm assuming most people listening aren't indigenous and, you know, they, they only go out to the land for a purpose if it's to travel, to harvest, to migrate and to survive more than anything. And I think most of us are pretty lucky to not have to do that. So my connection with the, the going to the mountains and, and finding that same sensation goes for a, more of a lifestyle than, than a necessity. So, uh, you know, I, I go to the mountains for the sole purpose of living my life than surviving. And, uh, I mean, Ron Chambers, he's a legendary uh, mountaineer, but the interesting thing about him is that he's also indigenous. And he climbed Mount, Lo uh, Mount Logan in Alaska way back in the day, and he was the first indigenous person to climb it. And it caused a lot of controversy in that part of the world because 
the his community didn't understand why he would risk his life just to climb a mountain if he's not going to gather resources or or meet with any other tribe so it was a really cool meeting him yeah and and it makes me wonder if you've reassessed your own journey like should i be putting myself in this great danger when it's not a matter of survival, when it's not a matter of life or death to feed myself, for instance. I, I actually wonder what the most dangerous situation you found yourself in was on this journey. You know, there's a... I like to view that as two kinds of dangers. There's the the, the fear of not doing anything and, and just living a life where you're not content with. So that that's kind of my biggest fear. Huh. And uh, the the more literal danger, we were out in Kyrgyzstan um, trying to do Lenin Peak, which is 24,000 feet. And we tried doing it in five days instead of 21 days, which is tough. But since we were there during spring, so it's a transitional period in the mountains where Ciroc's, avalanches, mudslides, everything is happening at the same time. Uh, it, you know, it was pretty dangerous and we got out of there. So... But it, it's been a tough time. Mountains are big and there's big avalanches. There's big risks. You get negative 60 degree weather, 150 mile an hour wind gusts. So every day is pretty tough, but we get by. And it's not as if rescuers are close at hand by any means. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the snowboarder and filmmaker Rafael Pease, who has produced the new documentary Yugen. It follows his travels to mountains all over the world and his interactions with the people who are connected to those lands. So one man you met was climbing with an axe, an ice axe. This is in Kyrgyzstan. And he talked about the fact that there's no need to carry weapons to deal with animals on the mountain. Just tell us what he's saying here. Uh, so Igor, he's a very cool guy from northern Kyrgyzstan. And uh, he's one of the last mountaineers in the area that comes from Soviet descent. And he's basically saying that animals and nature understand mountaineers and climbers, snowboarders, skiers, that go into the mountain for that sole purpose. And they're not scared of you because they understand that you're just going there to do your own thing and you're not going to kill them, kill the animals. So it was an interesting perspective coming from him. And uh, I, I like to agree with it most of the time, but there are situations where there's polar bears and other animals that you just bump into. But that's just part of it. Huh. So that that's some insight into how he reads animals and how they read him. Now, it occurred to me that you are going into places not only that are remote geographically, but somewhat remote linguistically. And uh, I don't want to make assumptions, but I, I assume you do not speak all of the languages of the people that you encountered. How, how did you possibly deal with the, the language barriers in this project? Well, you know, I was pretty fortunate to have friends all over the world, and a couple of them met up in Japan and, and so forth, but for the majority of the time, we were unable to understand what everyone was saying. 
I tried learning a couple words in Kyrgyz and Russian, Japanese and so forth. But at the end of the day, you don't know what anyone is saying because accents are different. Then they have different dialects for different parts of the country. So there's not really a point in learning the whole general language. Uh, but, you know, everyone laughs and that's kind of the <laughs> universal language. So if someone's laughing, then every, everything's good. No one's going to harm you. But that means you would have come back home with just, what, hours of footage and hours of people speaking in that footage and not really have known what they were saying. Yeah, you know, and that's kind of my fault since uh, I never made a movie before. And <laughs> I thought documentaries, you just go out there and film everything and, and anything that's beautiful. And that's literally what I did. I, I ended up with 500 plus hours of footage and putting that into less than an hour is pretty tough. So it was it was quite interesting having 30 plus interviews in over 11 languages and then getting everything translated and kind of trying to piece together a story. But, uh, you know, I think I think I pulled off something that some people might enjoy. And uh, I'm pretty happy for for my first film. I'll reiterate that it, it does feel like a global meditation looking at these scenes of our planet and the people who live on it that we otherwise would not have a glimpse of thanks Raphael, for being with us yeah no problem thank you for having me Raphael pease produced the documentary yugen it shows tonight at the ramble hotel in denver this is colorado matters from cpr news It sounds like the plot of a children's book, A Baby Llama Gets Stuck on Top of a Mountain. Well, that actually happened. And now the real-life story is a children's book. The Little Lost Llama is about an event nine years ago atop Pike's Peak. A llama named Homer was up there for a month and a half. Tracy Ducharme rescued him. She is also the book's illustrator. Tracy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Delighted to be here. This was big news in 2009, wasn't it? It was. People were really captivated by the story. The uh, Gazette had some pictures of him in the newspaper. People on the Cog Railway were taking his picture, and people thought it was kind of interesting and fun. But when we found out about it, we started to be concerned because we knew it wasn't natural for him to be up there and it could be a dangerous situation for him. You mentioned the Gazette in Colorado Springs. So this made the newspapers. It made television stations. The book follows the saga from Homer's point of view. Uh, But I'm interested in your perspective for the purposes of this interview. You and your friends indeed took it upon yourselves to rescue Homer. Right. My friend Marlise Van Zant had um, friends that were rangers on the mountain and also knew the man that was in charge of the Cog Railway. And she started coordinating with them um, ideas and times when we could go up there. And it was fall, so there were already some winter storms happening. So we were starting to get worried about him. And we didn't think he would survive much longer So they gave us permission to walk. They gave us this train schedule, gave us permission to walk on the train tracks. And, yeah, so we went up there a few times looking for him. So in no way is this a friendly landscape to a llama? I mean, I guess I think of a llama as a creature that's not afraid of mountains necessarily. Well, they are an alpine animal. They're they're native to the Andes um, 
in South America, but they're a domesticated animal. And this was a juvenile, and he wasn't, in fact, when we found him, he already suffered some frostbite. So he really wasn't going, and with all the predators and everything else, it's amazing that he survived for six weeks. How do you begin to rescue a llama. It seems even harder than trying to get like a bird that's flown into my house. Well, <laughs> well, it was when the first time I went up there and we got out of the truck and looked around and this is a white llama on a snow-capped mountain. Okay. And I thought... Looking this for a is polar bear a, in a snowstorm, yes. in other words. I, I thought I wasn't very optimistic, but we had we knew where he hung out because the hunters had told had seen him and had reported to the rangers. The rangers had actually tried to capture him a couple of times with a lasso. And so we knew about where to look for him. Uh, we'd seen his tracks. And so we knew he was still up there. Um, so I had some optimism, but it was like a needle in a haystack looking for him. Did you use some sort of lure? My lure was my llama. So we knew that he would be extremely lonely because they're very strong herd instinct. And that's why he was trying to join the sheep herd that was up there. Oh. And and with little success, they kept chasing him away because he was very funny looking to them. But um if we if we thought we thought if we he could see us with our llamas that he would come to us and that's exactly what happened. Would you read this portion of the book? Sure. For us. Sure. This is from The Little Lost Llama, based on a true story. Suddenly, Tracy spotted the little lost llama. He was below her on the mountain. He looked healthy, though a little thin. Tracy knew this would be her best chance to rescue him. But the little lost llama was so busy playing with a marmot and ground squirrels, he didn't notice her. Come on, dancer, she said. Let's go get this little llama. Later that morning, when the storm quieted, the little lost llama ventured out of his protected space. He saw a most surprising and welcoming sight. Another llama was cautiously approaching him, making his way slowly over the rough, frozen ground. And this worked. It worked. It worked. Okay, what of Homer today? He's a healthy, um, athletic, fun, 10-year-old llama. (laughs) And in your possession? Yes, yes. Okay. Who were Homer's owners, and were they aware well, of what was happening? Well, it was interesting because the the day I captured him, we happened to have there was a news reporter on the mountain with me that day, and she did a little interview, and the interview was picked up by the AP and broadcast nationwide, and his previous owners happened to be in Seattle, Washington, and saw it on TV, and they contacted the AP and then got my information through the AP and and reached out to me. That's how we figured out how old he was, how long he'd been missing, what happened to his mother, and all the backstory. And so he had uh, wandered off when they lived in Colorado and they had then moved to Washington? They had a summertime ranch um, near Divide, Colorado. And so they had already left for the winter. Okay. And uh, and they were happy to have you be Homer's keeper. Yes, this um, the herd had been attacked by a mountain lion, and it wasn't the first uh, mountain lion uh, encounter that they'd had. And so they had gotten rid of the rest of their llamas. And so he didn't really have a herd to go home to. So they asked me to board him for the winter. And of course, by spring, I was so attached to him that they uh, gifted him to me. I'm glad Homer is doing well. What have you brought with you? What is this? So this is roving. I wanted to show you how soft the fiber is that the the llamas in in the sweater that I'm wearing is made from my my llama's fiber. I see. Their wool. Isn't that wonderful? That is wonderful. Incredibly soft. 
And uh, it, but is that Homer's? This is actually Dancer's. He's the That's hero okay. mama that rescued Homer. Well, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate your sharing this story with us. Thank you for inviting me. Tracy Ducharme rescued the baby llama stuck atop Pikes Peak in 2009. And she has also illustrated a new children's book called The Little Lost Llama. That's our show for today. We're grateful you could spend time with us. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner. The show is at Colorado Matters, and we are CPR News on Facebook. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. This is Colorado Public Radio.